Okay, thanks. So I'm, I'm, so my presentation, I guess, is going to be a little bit different from we have seen these days. Um, there's no formulas, no models, anything like that. I, I just don't know how to do that. Uh, anyway, I'm going to present more or less uh, some organizations that some of you probably don't know and the things that we are doing in our lab. And then hopefully some, something will be interested. If it's too boring, just let me know. And I can skip some part and go directly to the movies, which are very entertaining. <laughs> but if you can keep going, we'll, focus, we'll put the movies at the last part, okay? So let's start with saying, so I work on this small institute, Institute of Evolutionary Biology in Barcelona. It's this building here. It's part of a big biomedical park. It's just in front of the sea, very harsh condition for working because you have <laughs> sunlight almost every day of the year. Um, so very nice dinner thing, I mean, for having lunch and everything. Uh, and, the, and the sea, actually, I mean, the ocean is, is not only good for seals like here. So, I mean, real people like us can go into the water almost every day. So, and not only that, but also then, and then you have on Wednesdays and Saturday the best soccer team of the world, you know, playing here in Barcelona. So it's, you know, terrible conditions. You have two options. One option is to go to the North European country with the weather is very, not, very bad, and then you have, but you have a lot of money. And the second option is to have a very good evolutionary question in which to work. And we have for now going into this question, this second option. So, <laughs> are, are you, are you close to uh, Sitges? We are, well, 30 kilometers from Sitges. Yeah. Yeah. So, and what, what's the question then? So the question is where, where we want to understand the origin of multicellularity. And, and as you all know, multicellularity has been at times, several times independently within the tree of life in prokaryotes and in eukaryotes. So we want to focus in one specific event, which is the origin of metazoa multicellularity, which is probably one of the most complex multicellularity never attained by eukaryotes. And of course, I mean, this is the origin of animals, the origin of metazoa. So this is an important question. We are not the only one that want to address the question. There are many labs around the world addressing the question. So, so why us then, right? So what do we bring into this question? Why a small lab in Barcelona can we bring to this question? I think we bring a lot, and I'm going to try to explain that during the presentation. But the most important thing we bring, it's a different perspective, which I think is very important for this question. So let me clarify this. So most researchers working on the origin of animals, they approach this question from a completely metazoan perspective. So what they do is they compare early branching animals like cnidarians, Dinophores, sponge, and they compare the morphology and the genomes with the most complex bilateral ones. And by comparing the genomes, they try to infer how the first multicellular animals look like, which is great. I mean, I don't have anything against that. But this is not really our question. We want to understand how unicellular proteins gave rise to animals, right? So, and then you need a different perspective. So this will be like if you try to understand the origin of Homo sapiens, you can, of course, compare current Homo sapiens populations, and you can have very nice insights into the question. But if you really want to understand the origin of Homo sapiens, you need to go into Neanderthals, Homo erectus, or even other primates, right? So this is the same. If you really want to understand the origin of metazoans from their unicellular ancestors, you need to go into a different perspective. So what we propose to do is, you com is to compare early branching metazoans with their closest unicellular relative. 
And by comparing their genomes or their morphology, you can infer how the last common unicellular ancestor looked like. And if you know how the last common unicellular ancestor looked like, then you can infer the molecular changes, the genetic changes that gave rise to the first multicellular animals. So that's the different perspective that we bring into this question. And in order to address that, we have three steps, three challenges, three problems that actually will be the three parts of this presentation. And the first problem is to identify who are the closest unicellular relative of metazoans, which is, was not very well known until, until recently. So it's quite clear for molecular phylogenies, even some years ago, that fungi and metazoan share a common ancestor, different than other eukaryotes, like plants, algae, etc. Which is, and they form a clade known as the pistocons. It was also known that coanoflacellates, this group of placellate proteins here, were probably, putatively, the sister group of metazoans. But there were other organisms that were, that we only had some, so one molecular gene. So we only had the gene of 18S ribosomal gene, and we knew they were some, somewhere within this opistocon clade, but we didn't know where. And these were Capsospora, Ministeria, Nuclear, Yetiospora, and Corautricium. Don't worry too much about them. The important thing is that there were other lineages that were probably somewhere on this clade, but we didn't know where. So thanks to molecular phylogenies, mostly from my lab, but also from other labs, now we have a better view on all the opistocon clades. So we now know very clear who are the, unicell the unicellular relative of fungi, which are Fonticula alba and a group of amoebas called nucleariids. So they are the sister group to fungi, and they are then important to understand the origin of fungi. On the other hand, we now know that not the metasomans are all have other relatives. So besides quanoflagellates, you have other clades here. See if this is working. Okay. So which is the Philasterian with only two known species so far, Capsospora and Ministeria. And then we have another clade, not working, which is called the Tiosporian, which comprises around 30 to 40 species. Some of them form colonies, some of them are parasites of fish, arthropods, crustaceans, etc. This was determined by ribosomal? This was determined by, first by, well, by ribosomal was not clear enough to determine that, so that is multi-gene uh, concatenated. Phylogenetic trees or phylogenomic trees, as some people call it. There's a consensus on the right way to do all this concatenation of you, you can, you, yeah, you can, you can have like hundreds genes concatenated all together, and then that's what you have. You have, I mean, this basically was done by EST project. So we had an EST project on Capsospora, Ministeria, Ictosporia, Nucleariids, Coanoflacellates, etc. And then we did 120 genes, all concatenated. This is very clear. So, quanoflacellate will be the sister group, and then you have two more clades that are closely related to animals and quanoflacellates, Philasterias and Ethiosporians. What happens if you don't concatenate, or you start to split the concatenates into subgroups and things? Some genes will. all different answers? I mean, no. I mean, most. Variance is not very wide. No, most of the answers will go to that. But the thing of concatenated, I mean, this will be like another, um, another issue, but the thing of concatenated is that the. It, you built up the most, the, the, I mean, what you built up the, the real, in, in theory, the real phylogeny, because what is noise is getting out 
because you have a lot of things. I mean, I mean, usually. That's actually, I hate to uh, <laughs> bring this up here, but because it's probably such a so trees, of course, start with Darwin, right? And 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 everyone uses trees, but things like insertions and inversions and and a whole and obviously swapping DNAs and, and uh, from foreign yeah, so they, I mean, this really mess up trees. Well, of course. I mean, we have you have to be very careful how to combination messes up. You have to be very careful on how to. For example. One of the things we did is to use only single copy protein domains. I mean, some people use concatenated gene trees, and they use genes that they can have paralogous genes. And this can have a problem. So, I mean, I'm, going not, I'm, I'm not going to dive into that, but we use, for example, only single copy protein domains. So that you have, there is only one single copy of this protein domain, and we use that to infer, and that's very clear. Is there possible to have a p-value or error bar on phylogenetic trees? So this is this is hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent. The only yeah, booster values, and this will be so. These in some in previous trees, these were or these were going together, but now they are now they're separated. They are separated. And all groups agree on the separation, or there's still groups that fight each other? Well. Let's say we are mostly the group that is working on that. So, oh, okay. uh, and we, we were the ones that say these were. One hundred percent. The idea of concatenation is uh, you choose the genes uh, that uh, so housekeeping genes that everybody got, just like uh, ribosomal subunit. Well, it. so. The, the, the idea of concatenated trees used especially for herbophilia, for example, which use a lot of phylogenomics, is to, use, is to do what you said. So the most, the most um, it will be basically protein ribosomal genes. In our case, we use the ones that were most, um, less prone to phylogenetic problems. So they were large enough, they were quite conserved, they didn't have Paralogous problems, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We choose the. Yeah. What happens if you reduce the number of genes to a minimal set? Suggest if you reduce, then you lose, you lose support. You lose support. I mean, we are talking about millions of years, and then some of the tree. I mean, some of the genes you will lose support because. But if you use only ribosomal genes, TRH. If you use only ribosomal genes, this will be somewhere here, but okay. it's not very clear. I mean. Of course, we, we also have. I mean, we also have ribosomal genes with a lot of taxa because, of course, here we can only use one or two ethiosporeans. If you use concatenated trees, if you use ribosomal genes, you can have like ten ethiosporeans, and more or less you get the same. But the support is not so clear. With concatenated trees, it's much more clear. But the, gen the genes that you're using in Yaki, is it? Are the f functions known? At what yeah, you are yeah. saying, are they these housekeeping? They are, or is it just, or you're not basing this? We on are not basing on functions, no. Sorry, a very ignorant question. So you, you just, you collect the data, you do this uh, yeah. analysis, but then from there to the tree, do you have any modeling from the back? Of course, all trees have some modeling. We use the more state-of-the-art modeling. So for example, we use the CAD model, which is supposedly the one that is the best to infer this kind of phylogenesis. What model? It's called the CAT model. Does it use what? Maximum likelihood? Of course, this is all maximum likelihood. Yeah, or Bayesian inference. It doesn't matter. 
something? That no, no, maximal parsimony. No, we don't. We, we never use it. We, we, don't, we don't trust it. Yeah. And then presumably the length of these things has a meaning, a Evolutionary number. distance. Yeah, so what's a typical error bar? Yeah, that, that's a, a number. We don't use error bars on is for... Why not? For the, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think those sub-gravity is because it might be used for the question was, I guess, the length branch. Yeah, the length has meaning. Yeah. Anyway, if you use here the WAC model, the CAD model, I mean, you can use whatever model you want. It's so clear that it's like this. I mean, you can do, I mean, we use the state of the art model, but if you choose more simple model, GTT, WAC, whatever, it's go. It's, it's very, it's hopefully very, very clear. The only thing you can, it's not so clear is this because the problem is taxon sampling. You only have two species here and two or three species here. And that's why the support is not so strong. So, so that was the first step that I was selling, which so, which, who are the unicellular relative of metathon. We now know that, and trust me, this is quite clear, I think, so the second step will be to obtain genome data from those organisms and compare it with early branching metazoans, right? And the, actually, the first one to realize that was, was not us. Ah, so the first one to realize that was Nicole King in UC Berkeley. So the, he, she was the first one to obtain a genome sequence of one of these organisms, one Quanoflacellae monocyga brevicoli, and then infer <coughs> some, and, and infer how the last communal ancestor looked like. So they sequence one quanoflacellate called Monocyga brevicolis. They compare it with metathoans and they infer how the last common unicellular ancestor between quanoflacellates and metathoans look like. And they infer that this ancestor already had some genes which were previously thought to be specific to metathoans, such as caterins, which are involved in cell addition, or protein tyrosinkinases, which are important for cell signaling. But they also show on their analysis that metathoans had a lot, a lot evolutionary innovations, including several, including integrins, an important cell addition pathway, including several signal, important signaling pathways, and a lot of metazoan transcription factors. So that was, that was uh, the line of, that, that was what the paper, what it came from that paper. But the question is, and that's what, this is our rationale, you cannot infer really how the how unicellular proteins became animals by, by having only one single quanoflacellate. It's only one single quanoflacellate. Also, you have to take into account that secondarily, gene losses are quite important in eukaryotes, and then you are losing information on those lineages. So you are losing information on the last common ancestor of Philasterians, quanoflacellates, and metathoans, the last common ancestor of Hesperians, quanoflacellates, and metathoans, and even the last common ancestor of all the pistocons. And we propose that you need data from all those organisms in order to infer all those last common ancestors and then infer the transition from unicellular to multicellular animals. We actually propose those the National Human Genome Research Institute, and we propose to sequence everything that was technically possible in order to understand the origin of multicellularity in both fungi and metazoans. So we propose to sequence another quanoflacellate, Salpingo de Carroseta, which actually makes colonies. We propose to sequence the two Philasterians that are known, Capsospora and Ministeria. We propose to sequence two Ichesporeans, Spharoform and Amoebidium. We propose to sequence one sister group of fungi, Fonticola alba, 
we proposed to sequence three early branching fungi because there was not much information on early branching fungi. And we even proposed to sequence Tecamonastrine, which is an opusathoan, which is clearly a sister group to all the opistocons. So this is called the Unicorn Genome Project, and it involves our lab, but also lab, um, Nicole King's lab in Berkeley, Peter Holland lab in Oxford, Andrew Rocher lab at Dalhousie University, and Franz Lack um, at Montreal University. So, yeah? I'm sorry, I think I'm very ignorant. Is, that, is this project somehow related to what is available on the web page of the Broad Institute? Yeah, this is done by the Broad. So the sequencing and the assembly are done by the Broad Institute. Yeah, yeah. So, so far, we have obtained the genomes of those organisms from the Unicore. And what I'm going to show is whether these Unicore, these genomes, are standing up to the expectation, right? So is it they are living up to the expectations of these proposal? And I think they are, but let's going to show. So the first surprise was the integrins. So remember, integrins were thought to be specific to metathoans. They are not in quanoflacellates, in fungi, in plants, in any other eukaryotes. So we check whether in, that was true, and we check integrins in all these new uh, genomes that we had. And the surprise came that integrins were actually already present in tecamonas, the sister group to all the opistocons, present also in captospora, and secondarily lost in fungi and secondary loss in coronaflacellate. So we are talking about a very important selectation mechanism. So integrins, what they do integrins is they link the actin filaments with the extracellular matrix. So it's a very important selectation mechanism. Thought to be specific to animals, it was actually found here, found in Captospora, secondary loss in fungi, secondary loss in coronaflacellate, which, which means that the important pathways can be secondarily lost. Is it possible to know that there are integrin-like molecules that do the same thing functionally, but structurally? It could be possible, but you don't have integrins. You don't have the structure of the integrins in fungi or conoplasmates. So you say they link the actin to the extracellular matrix? They link the actin filaments with the extracellular matrix. Extra. Yeah. So what you have is integrin alpha and integrin beta. Integrin alpha and integrin beta. They, they have a extracellular part, and they heterodimerize, and they, they link with several scaffolding proteins right. that link this integrin alpha and beta with the active filament. complex, yeah. integrin-associated adhesion Exactly. Complex. And actually, what I mean here is that you have integrin alpha, integrin alpha, integrin beta, integrin like pinus, and all the other scaffolding proteins are here. Do and many of those proteins are secondary loads. Do they always recognize the same um, amino acid sequences in the extracellular matrix? Because the integrins in all the way down through Drosophila recognize <coughs> the exact same signals I don't know. in extracellular matrix. So actually integrins, they do addition and they do signaling, as you yes. said. So I, I don't know that. And a cadherin is a different... Uh, cadherin is cell-to-cell. Cell. Yeah, thank you. So yeah. how about the rest of uh, extracellular matrix in the... Well, if you look for it, extracellular matrix are very difficult. I mean, you can look for extracellular matrix protein domains. It's very difficult to look for extracellular matrix genes. But if you look for extracellular matrix protein domains, some of those are, are also not present here. But actually, for example, tecamonas and capsospora, they have intergenes, but they don't have this, the, the extracellular matrix protein domains specific of metathons. So no fibronectin, no collagen? Uh... No fibronectin, no collagen. So... I suppose then maybe they don't need to be Yeah, but as I said, also, there is no collagen here 
or here, and they have integrins. So the thing is, maybe integrins are doing something different. We don't know. They may be doing signaling. That's actually what we want to know. So I have a naive question. So do you systematically pick out integrins, or is it an expectation that integrin is important for metal zones? Is there sort of a way of finding out what we actually check? So yeah, yeah. So I, I should I should have explained that at the beginning. I I completely forgot. So. Our idea with these genomes, analyzing these genomes, was to check specifically for three things, which we think are important for multicellularity. Cell addition, because you have to adhere the genes if you want to be a multicellular. So we check for cell addition genes. We check for cell signaling genes, because if you are a proper multicellular organism, you have to signal in the genes. And we check for transcriptional regulation and cell differentiation genes. And we check for all, actually. That's one example. So this is like is going back to so cell addition, right? I mean, we have, we have had various talks where we see yeah. that yeast can stick to each other. Yeah. They probably don't have integrins. No, they don't uh, have so you, you, There are other pathways of right, cell so addition. What I'm struggling with is if I look at certain things which I think do, if, if you go from function, fall into a certain category, then, I mean, you see the problem, right? Like yeah, yeah. I looked at it, something so, different. Well, as I said, we, we focus on the origin of metazoan multicellularity. So we wanted to focus on the most important cell addition mechanisms in metazoans and see if they were evolutionary innovations of the metazoan lineage or they were already present on the unicellular ancestor. And if they were already present, the question will be, what are they doing there? I have a question about the phylogeny. So you're assuming the phylogeny you had shown in the previous <coughs> Yeah. You're putting the integrin interpretation on that phylogeny. Exactly. What if you had added integrins to that analysis? Would you get the same phylogeny? You, you can never do that. So what you have to do always, I mean, I have a lot of discussion about that. Because people will say, OK, if you have integrins, then you, everything changes. You always, so if you do phylogeny, you do phylogeny. Your question is to see how organisms relate to each other. That's what you do phylogeny. I mean, and a lot of people, a lot of labs, they only do phylogeny because they want to do how organisms relate to each other. Then you do phylogeny. And then other labs will do genomes or will do other things. And then you map those changes into the phylogeny. But the people that do phylogeny, don't, they don't, I mean, you want to see the real evolutionary, the real relationship between the species. And then you map the changes and the morphology into that. If you, if you do the other way, it's, you mess up everything. Maybe I'm a little lost because my impression from, from that 2008 paper and another paper is that part of the innovation was that these proteins are used in their current functions. So pr these proteins were already present yeah. surprisingly long time before, yeah. but they were not used for their current. Well, we don't know. I mean, that's what I'm going to go into. So we don't know. I mean, we just found that integrins are here. Nobody knows now what integrins are doing in tecamonas or capsospora. Nobody knows. But they, they found similarities. Wasn't that not just them in 2008, but later other people? No? Not with four integrins. Not for integrins. No, for other things, yes, I will explain. But for integrins, we don't know anything. We only know they are there. Could, could there have been a gene duplication event uh, acting on these ancestral integrins such that uh, 
they develop a different function later on? So, well, integrins, I mean, you have several integrins in metasoans, and for example, Capsospora has four integrins, and Tecamonas has one integrin, so there is a lot of evolution mm -hmm. into that. But they're constantly evolving new functions. Exactly. Well, within metasoans, you have. Frequency. Exactly, you have yeah. different. Right. right. And they're constantly evolving. Yeah. And gene transfer is possible? Gene transfer is, of course, possible. We have checked for gene transfer with actual We were very interested in lateral gene transfer before. There is nothing in our, anything that I'm going to show is clear in all lateral gene transfer because we check with metasoans. It never goes inside metasoans. We check, so Capsospora, for example, I'm going to explain by Capsospora live inside Bionfalaria gravata, which is a snail. We put Bionfalaria gravata, you have the genome, we put the genome. There is nothing, nothing that shows lateral gene transfer. But generally, so observing the presence of the gene for further down the tree than we know any function for it, it's pretty common. Right? <coughs> so, for example, a colleague uh, at the UCSB, I gave a talk earlier. Ken Kosick, uh, you know, looks at the so looks for origin of the synapse. Yeah. And uh, the observation is that the, so the scaffold protein that uh, uh, so collects yeah, yeah, uh, various yeah. potassium channels yeah. uh, in, uh, in our synapse is present in the sponge, yeah. but uh, none of the channels are. Yeah, I know. And it is I, I know ridiculously, it has three domains, uh, no, three PDZ domains. They completely, totally conserve. They bind the same motif, but uh, the partners are non-existent. I know. So, I mean, this I is. I think it's probably rather common that the. Well, the so protein, the, the, the gene is conserved much more than the function. So the, the first part of these surprises came with the sponge, right? And with cnidarians. So a lot of people were thinking those genes are specific to bilaterians. And with, with the genomes of the first animals, this was a, a lot of surprises came. Well, all those genes are on early branching animals. But now we are going, it's another surprise. We are going even before animals. So we are going to unicellular organisms. Because, I mean, the sponge and Nidarians, they still have, they are still multicellular. So we are going to amoeba-like amoeba organisms, and we are finding those genes. But, I, I mean, I agree. This is, I mean, we are, recur I mean, we are repeating the story, but just going st even farther away. I think Kanaki is running into the same thing that we're running into in the Boltzian algae, that things are co-opted. Yeah. So things have some primitive function that gets co-opted very quickly. <laughs> so that was with integrins. Then we check... All the most important metasoan transcription factors. This is just, this slide is just to see that we check a lot, that we did a lot of work, even if we are in front of the beach. And the secondary losses in fungi, and a lot of secondary losses in monocyga verbicolis. Okay? So, for example, metasoan, actually, this, as a collateral damage of this analysis, we destroy a little bit the idea of metasoan developmental genetic toolkits that was proposed in several natural and science papers. And I think now it's this is destroyed. Anyway, so before the unicore data, so the pre-unicore idea was that runes, tibos, grainy head, ETS, SMAT, nuclear receptors, NF-kappa, all those transcription factors were specific to metathoans. They were not present in colonoflagellates or in any other eukaryotes. So the unicore changed this idea, and a lot of these transcription factors were already present in Capsaspora. Still, there are some transcription factors, like ETS, SMAT, nuclear receptors, that are specific to metasoans. And of course, there are a lot of expansions of those transcription factors within metasoans. Then some secondary doses in conoflagellates, P53 of ARNI is here, even a little bit before, because it's spraying also half them. And the X's on the monocyga lineage mean uh, mutations, or what's going on there? 
This secondary loss. Oh, loss. Yeah. They lost. Ah. So if you check the previous slide, ah. all of that are things that were already present here and secondary loss in corner flash legs. These secondary losses are they common? Well, secondary losses are common in eukaryotes, but corner flash legs seem to have lost a lot of things. And, and a loss is an excision of an entire gene or just a version to pseudo? You can, you, well, you don't find the gene. We have. I feel like I need a Greek dictionary sometimes. What an opistocont is a what? Opistocons are all that. So fungi and animals and all the unicellular relatives here. These are acusothoans, these will be unicorns. Anyway, we can go. Okay. <laughs> so you just mentioned in the side that this idea Metazoan toolkit for being a metazoan. That's one developmental genetic toolkit. So that's pretty much being totally. Well, they, they say this was all metazoan genetic, and you can see a lot of these transcription patterns already before. So. so maybe the question should be what is the, what's the genetic toolkit to be a prokaryote, and then what is the genetic toolkit to move beyond being a Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the idea we're working yeah. on. Yeah. Something like this. So if you um, ask a slightly different question, maybe that's uh, relevant to where you're going, but so let's say you have 10 transcription factors and they uh, arise early and they are preserved through uh, metazoan life and up yeah. through the primates, um, but you compare their preservation, that is to say, you compare how pre preserved they have been in their amino acids. Yeah, in, in many, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go into that, but in many of those, I'm going to put just one example. In many of those, we check and they have the specific binding amino acids, right. they have the amino acids that, they, that people say are right. clue to do right. the function in metazoan. So there's some rules to and really you, holding structure, function, relation. Yeah, yeah. So all this analysis is based not only by blast and hammer, but we do phylogeny if it's possible, and we check all the amino acid motifs that are known to be clue for metazoan functions. Right. And if you take that one step further and start asking the question, what genes do they regulate, or what pathways do they regulate? Well, then, the, then you need to go to the organisms and, and see, which is what we want yeah. to do in the future, if we can. Yeah. So for example, one surprise of these trachisopathos is we find very clear Brachyuri homolog in Captospor of Sazarki. So Brachyuri, it's a type of T-boxins. Brachyuri is known to work in gastrulation in metazoans, which is one of the stages in development, right? So it's very clear, not only phylogenetic, but it has all the specific amino acids that regulate Brachyuri. So of course the question here will be, so what is this Brachyuri, which works in gastrulation, doing in amoeba like Captospor of Sazarki? Or what is, are the integrins doing here? Or what is P53 doing here? What is NF-kappa doing here? So that's the important thing, the questions we want to ask now. But then we also analyze all these things in a genome-wide analysis. So we check, for example, along the eukaryotic tree, we check the origin of protein domains, all the protein domains. And we see that some protein, I mean, that is more or less advanced of protein domains going to metazoans. You know, so. These numbers are, mean what? So this is total protein domains that we have analyzed in, in each grade. And then the, the blue ones will be at new acquisitions that you find here. And the red ones will be losses. Okay. One of the problems with the PFAN domain analysis, at, uh, which I should mention, is PFAN, if you go to PFAN, most of the domains, protein domains, have been 
put here by people that work on animals. So it's, I think it's expected that you will find always a lot of metazoan protein domains. And if you find a gene that doesn't seem to belong there for some reason, is that a, then a, a candidate for a horizontal gene transfer? That was, that was the issue right yeah, there? yeah. We would, it's, yeah, we check by another way, but yes, that could be. So then, well, then we also check the, the gene ontology, so the function of those protein domains, and we see the allothoans. So allothoans will be metazoans, so animals and their closest unicellular ancestors, so they will be allothoans. You would you see that there is an increase on protein domains involved in signal transduction activity and transcriptional regulation activity. Right? Our group is simply chosen for calibration purposes? Yeah, our group will be all the other eukaryotes, just for calibration. Then metazoans, you will see the protein domains involved in extracellular region and transcriptional regulation are also enriched. You also see an enrichment of these protein domains. And loss of protein domains in, in monocytic vehicle is also in transcriptional regulation. This is a genome-wide analysis, so you, we don't check what they are. So how, do you re how do you tend to eliminate the horizontal transfer issues? Here, I mean, you, it's treacherous to do third position changes, neutral changes. So we, we check, as I said, we check um, by several pipelines, lateral gene transfers in Capsospora from prokaryotes and from other eukaryotes, which is very difficult to do. And we didn't find much. I mean, actually, you can find much more in one of the So I don't think we have much problem with lateral gene transfer going on with Capsospora. Is there actually a quant reliable quantitative estimate of the amount of gene transfer? Because I, I think this is a fact very in, 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 in eukaryotes? I mean, this is... Uh, no, in, in the entire tree, so where and how significant it is? Well, your lateral gene transfer in eukaryotes is still very debated. I mean, some people will say there are a lot. Some people will say it's not true. Some people will say it's the phylogenies. And some people have even shown that when you put more taxon sampling and you do better models of evolution, some of those lateral gene pro proposed lateral gene transfers are not really lateral gene transfer. They were just, you know, linear sortings. So in, they were lost in some lineas and maintaining others. Can you recognize retrotransposons? We can recognize retrotransposons. We check, and they have quite a lot. I don't remember the numbers. I don't, but I can tell you later. They have the potential for mediating some gene transfer. Yeah. But actually, we check some we check some genes that work near the retrotransposons to see if they were lateral gene transfer, and we didn't find. Actually, to deal with the issue of uh, gene transfer, you could have built PRJ trees not on the genes that the organisms have, but on the genes that the organisms don't have. Because similarity of absence, not similarity of presence. Well, we did, a tree, we did a tree. I mean, this is, nobody has done everything. But we did a tree just for personal consumer. I mean, just for, just for, <laughs> for having fun on, on presence and absence of protein domains. And the tree came the same as I have shown. So this is the same genome-wide analysis. Again, domains, gene expansion. So if you see more color, it's, it means it has more genes with those domains. You can see this is Captospora of Thazarchis, so allothoans. There is an increase in cell addition, extracellular components, extracellular region, receptors, ligands. But of course, this is amphimedon, so this is a sponge. In animals, you see much more genes expanded with those functions. So which, this allows us actually to, to decipher what, how was the Captospora cell, or actually how was the 
the cell of the last unicellular ancestor between guanoflagellates, capsaspora, and metathon. So everything that is in blue and red here was already present in the last common ancestor of metathoans, guanoflagellates, and capsaspora. The ones in blue were secondary losses in guanoflagellates. The ones that are white are only present in metathoans. Right? So you can see that regarding cell addition, you have several cell addition components already present in the unicellular ancestor. If you check signaling, you will see that signaling, there are important signaling components that are still specific to metathoans. We never know because maybe if we sequence more genomes, this will change, but Hitchcock not specific to metathoan, TGF beta specific to metathoan. And also importantly, in some cell signaling pathways, you see that the components of the intracellular part are conserved, but the parts of the extracellular part, I mean the components of the extracellular part of the signaling are not so conserved. And this I'm going to show now very good example. Then transcription and regulation, some things are specific, some things already present before. We show, this shows that the last common unicellular ancestor that gave rise to metathoans was already quite complex for cell addition, for transcription and regulation, and for cell signaling. But still cell signaling, there are several pathways that are specific, unique, to animals or metathoans. So what I was mentioning about, <coughs> yeah. You, you have rhodopsin there. Rhodopsin. Yeah. So metazoans. only metathoans, yeah. That's... Do they have any other light sensitive things? I don't remember. Okay. I mean, I remember. Right now. Sorry. But I can check for you if you want. Eh? So in protein tyrosine kinases, as you, you know, protein tyrosine kinases very important for cell signaling, very conserved within metathoans. You have two types of protein tyrosine kinases. One that are called receptor protein tyrosine kinases. They have an extracellular domain. They link something from the environment, and they, link, they signal that to the inside of the cell. And you have then the cytosolic protein tyrosine kinases, which signal something from here to more inside the cell. So two types, receptor and cytosolic protein tyrosine kinases. Quantosphalcellates already have hundreds of protein tyrosine kinases. Captospora has 104 protein tyrosine kinases, but very important difference. So if you take cytosolic protein tyrosine kinases, the ones that are inside the cell, you would see that there are conserved. Some of those are conserved between metathoans and Captospora. And then there are some that are unique to Captospora to capsospora and some that are unique to metathoans, cytosolic. And then if we go, that's very interesting, if we go to the receptor protein tyrosine kinases, there are a lot of receptor protein tyrosine kinases in capsospora, but they are all lineage independence acquisitions. So there is no homology between receptor protein tyrosine kinases. Or showing another, yeah. Can you go back a little bit? I, I got puzzled. Sorry. This business, uh, yeah, I don't know anything about rhodopsin. Eh? No, it's just that <laughs> I mean, it's here, but I don't remember anything. There is bacteria rhodopsin, right? So we know right. that. Uh, but uh, so is this a statement that this is sort of too far from. Uh, Maybe. From I, I say that. It doesn't show up in, I, I, in the lineage? I don't remember this. I don't remember. So decolor code this again. White means it's only in multicellular. In, in animals, yes. blue and, and, and red already present in the unicellular ancestor. Right. Blue secondary loss in quantoflagellates. What's remarkable is this is a real list of developmental genes used by, I mean, in the best studied systems, Drosophila and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and worms. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, this is just the, the precursor to serious development, more yeah. Yeah. morphological. Exactly. 
And that's where we want to go. So segmented organisms. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Many things are here, which yeah. is very surprising. But some of obviously them. Obviously, not being used in that. In way, that context. This is a pretty simple. Exactly. Problem. Exactly. We'll go to that in two. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm sorry to go on this, but. Rhodopsin, I. I'm a little surprised. <laughs> I mean, I don't particularly care about the Rhodopsin. It's sorry. just that Rhodopsin, I happen to know uh, a little bit more than uh, about the random Which thing. Which makes you dangerous, right? Which, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, uh, because. Uh, now, so there's a little bit of a question. Okay, so we know there's bacterial rhodopsin, and there's certainly lots yeah. of so GBCR proteins. Yeah, so well, one thing I should mention, this is all checking eukaryotes. We didn't even worry about prokaryotes. Well, okay. okay so then we will so if this talk he, about the horizontal transfer from prokaryotes again. Right? So if rhodopsin is, is here, it means it's not in Negleria, it's not in, in other eukaryotes. <coughs> I mean, and, and I don't, as I say, I don't, know, I don't remember our rhodocell. I don't even know if my lab did that, because this is a, we had other labs involved in this analysis. So I don't know if rhodopsin, bacteria rhodopsin is different from eukaryote rhodopsin. I, I, I mean, I don't know. As I said, I, I mean, I don't know. Right, so the yeah. concern, of course, is that, uh, again, this business of error bars, right? So, uh, so different uh, proteins have different level of constraints. They can be evolving at different uh, yeah. rates. Yeah. So maybe some of the things that will show up white here, yeah. mainly because they fall yeah. on yeah. the other side. Yeah, yeah. Of, no, I agree. Of this and taxon sampling can change this also. And this picture can change very big time. Yeah. So then the question is uh, how detailed should we be uh, yeah. looking at it? So, for so, example, so, yeah. some things are very clear. Some things, I mean, I have not shown here, but in the paper that we want to publish, some things we, we put here an asterisk or a number, and then we explain, because maybe it has been shown to be in the testellium, but it's not very clear, or it's not phylogenetically conserved, or whatever. And then we go into details on this. But I don't remember all the details now of everything. But this, I mean, I'm pretty confident that what it says here is... I can imagine there's a lot of noise, even more noise, but is there any information on the cis regulatory regions that. Um... Okay, so I, I, I didn't put it here, but we check, we check the, so the, the intergenic distance of capsospora, we compare it with the intergenic distance of conoflagellates, we compare it with the intergenic distance of several metazoans with titostelium. And then we observe that, for example, in genes involved in cell signaling, transcriptional regulation, the intergenic distance, genes involved in cell signaling, transcriptional regulation, in capsospora, the intergenic distance was larger than genes involved in other functions. But this was also true for titostelium, for example, and was also true for some fungi, and was also true for most metazoans. So I don't know if this is specific to, I mean, we have to go into further into that. We put that in the paper, we mentioned that, but we put it in the supplementary material because maybe it's something specific to all unicorns. But you can see an enlarged intergenic region on genes involved in cell signaling, transcriptional regulation in capsospora, compared to genes involved in metabolic functions, for example. That's the only thing we check. So, yeah, I think I explained that, right? So, coming back to this, so this will be cytosolic, cytoplasmic, uh, protein, protein tyrosine kinases. 
with the sponge, monocyga, human, drosophila, and capsospora of the Tharki, you see that the cytoplasmic toolkit was already more or less present and conserved. And this is the receptor protein dinosinkinase. You would see that monocyga bredicolis, they independently acquired their receptor protein dinosinkinase. Capsospora independently acquired their receptor protein dinosinkinase. Even in sponge, they have some that are independently acquired. We propose that this means that because these are receptor protein dinosinkinase, so they send the environment, they change, I mean, they have to innovate depending on their environment, each organisms. Whereas the cytoplasmic ones can be more conserved. Well, all of that brings us to the third part, or the third challenge, which is what are those, which actually you have already asked several times here. So what are those genes doing here? What is Mercury doing? What is Integrin doing? What are all those genes doing? What's the problem? If you want to understand what are those genes doing on those organisms, you need to have genetic tools. I mean, you need to have transgenesis tools. You need to be able to do silencing, knockouts, overexpression, etc. And of course, we are the only ones working on those organisms. So we don't have those tools, but we are trying to develop those tools, and as I'm going to explain. But first, I'm going to introduce you, this will be the entertaining part. I'm going to introduce you to the organism. So this is Captosporosotharchy, the one I have shown all the genome analysis, all the things. It's, it's actually a symbiont of the snail beyond Falaria gravata. So it was found inside the snail beyond Falaria gravata. It has this phylopodia, this is the regular shape. It grows without bacteria, which is very good for technical things in the lab compared to conoflacellates, so they don't grow, they don't need bacteria in the culture, and they grow very easily. So, at the same time that we were doing the genome, I mean, this is, biology is different now, so, before you had like 100 or 200 years of experiments in Xenopus, and then you had the genome of Xenopus, or 200 years of experiments in Drosophila, and then you had the genome of Drosophila. In this case, we had the genome of Capsospora, and we didn't even know how Capsospora looked like, right? So at the same time that we are analyzing the genome, we are trying to analyze the life cycle, which nobody knows. And we have seen an important feature. So the life cycle, so Capsospora has like three different cell stages. So this will be the most common one. So when they, when they grow normally, when you put in the culture, they, they, this is we call adren or phylopodial state. So they have this phylopodia, they attach to the substrate with this phylopodia, and they move very happy. That's the, how they look like. And then when they grow, and maybe when there is depletion of nutrition, they go into these cystic states. So there is no phylopodia. We don't know if they lose it or they contract the phylopodia, but there is no phylopodia and they don't, they don't get attached to the substrate, they just float into the medium. So that will be second cell state that you can see in Capsospora. And then we also found that it has an aggregative state. So when you put the medium, when you agitate the medium, they actively come together and they aggregate forming these conglomerates here. Professor, I don't understand the, the scale of this. So each little... Well, this is, this is a time-lapse video which is probably running 200 times faster than real life. Each circle is one organism, and they actively come together and they form these conglomerates. And this which, is at which stage which, in the... See, see, these are conglomerates. Wait, and the so, organism here is multi... It's Captospora. This, no, no, this Captospora. Okay, already. The same. Yeah, yeah. So this is this. And this has roughly how many cells there? We haven't counted can be up to 100, for example. And then what happens after 
forms the aggregation phase? So this is actually the cell cycle as we think into working. So it can go from adherent to aggregate directly. It can go to adherent to cystic directly. It can go to <laughs> aggregate to cystic or adherent. It's all we don't have the snail. This is culture conditions. But pres presumably it does happen inside the snail somehow? I don't know. That isn't the I'm trying to get into that. Don't <coughs> you see? You mean to imply that's a multinucleate? So it's an aggregative cytoplasm, or is it individual cells? So we don't see, we see this kind of things in, in electron microscopy, but we, we, if you go here and you do transmission, you don't see anything that goes one cell into the other. What you do see is some kind of extracellular matrix here. So they, like they, they, they look, they seem like they segregate something. And, they, and, and how something. The, how the SEM is prepared? I mean, you can get drive extracellular matrix to look like ridges. So, but, but this, if, if you look here, you never see right. something. So this maybe is the way, it's a technical thing. An artifact, exactly. Medium is the same. Medium is the same in the three stages. And the ploidy as you go around? Sorry? The ploidy, is it diploid or haploid? Or we don't know. We are trying to work into that. We don't know. We think it's, Diploids, on that, but we have to double check. Sister, not haploids, for instance. I mean, because I mean, this is the, the question of whether there's sexual cycle or yeah, it has all the sex genes, all the meiosis genes, but we don't know if it's sexual or not. Is there linkage to equilibrium? We haven't checked. We don't know how to check it, and we haven't checked. I mean, we have so many things to do that. <laughs> you take multiple, um, you don't have multiple genomes, or you haven't done any We have only one genome of Capsospora. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, only one. And in your cell cycle, there's a unidirectional arrow at the very top. It never goes the other way. Yeah, from here, it never goes to here. It has to go through the, yeah. the uh, intermediate yeah. stage to aggregate. Yeah. And what happens in the snail, then, the life cycle? We don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I have been trying to go into Bionfalaria people many times to work into that, because actually it's very interesting. So Capsospora, it's inside Bionfalaria gravata. Bionfalaria gravata, it's also the host of Schistosoma manzoni. You know? And some people in 1980, they say that this capsospora eat the sporocytes of Schistosoma manzoni. And, but the only thing they show is some pictures in which you see the, sporos, the sporocyte of Schistosoma and the capsospora attached to the sporocytes. So I don't know if that's real or not. I will, I will very much like to know. But so far, I have not been much obsessed with but you, people. You, I mean, they must escape from the snail and somehow transmit it to other snails. Probably. Um, and they may have a preliminary stage, who knows? Yeah, yeah, whether they're eaten by something else or whether they're expelled from the snail. I'm just wondering what the relationship between this life cycle that you might see or do see yeah. in the lab and reality. We also wonder, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. Have we would like to know, eh? <laughs> have you ever seen division of the, of the multicellular? No. One, they aggregate, they stay aggregate, all the two, they, they just come, and then... But what is the condition it. of aggregation? Is that shortage of nutrients uh, or something? What's the condition? Well, it happens randomly, I and mean, we don't know why it happens, but if you agitate the culture, it always happens. So we, we have a method to make it. So if you agitate the culture, not even, I mean, just agitate a little bit, it always aggregates. So what if you start it? 
we have to check it. We haven't. But usually starvation, I think it provokes, we think it provokes aggregation. What has this guy got? It's got integrins, it's got cadherins. Yeah, yeah it got one cadherin. Right. Yeah. So you have some candidates for cell-cell uh, association. Yeah, cell actually. So why would you, yeah, I, I'm going to show. Okay, go ahead. So we have actually done transcriptome profiles of, this, of these three stages with three oh, biological wow. replicates. And you can see that it's very, I mean, it's very regulated. So you have genes that are enriched, expressed, I mean, more, how do you say in English, highly enriched in some uh, stages, but not in others. So, for example, in the aggregated stage, you will see genes involved in mitotic, chromosome, focal adhesion, and extracellular matrix. If you look into the cystic stage, you will see uh, autophagy, snare complex, hydrolysis, and if you go into the addition, you will see signaling, a lot of signaling, protein diosenginases, prescriptional regulation, I think. So some genes are enriched in some cell stages, but not on the other, which means that there is, these cell stages are highly regulated. Even if we go to alternative splicing, you will see different alternative splicing profiles in each of those cell stages. So we want to propose that maybe on the transition from unicellular to multicellular, you had several cell stages that were temporally different. So you had temporal cell differentiation, but then within the metathoans, you went from temporal cell differentiation, regulated cell differentiation, into spatial regulated cell differentiation. These are top hits from uh, gene ontology? These top genes from gene ontology only the enriched ones. And the down ones. I have. In red. So highly regulated. This is from transcription? Uh, Transcriptome, three, three biological replicates, and high, high, deep sequencing done by Broad Institute. Very good data. Can you transform those we can transform that. I, I will go into that. And before so, you go to ichthyospore, where, where in the snail, snail do these? Emolymph. And that means what? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like the blood of the... I see. In the blood. In the blood. Hemolymph. Yeah. Hemolymph. Yeah. I, I see. see. I mean, I don't know. So this is... So that was Captospora. I'm going now one step forward. Ichthyosporeans, right? Remember there were three lineages. So coanoflacerates, philasterium with capsospora, which I have told with like half an hour. Now I'm going to ichthyosporeans. I'm going to show you what ichthyosporeans are. This is one ichthyosporeans, which we did sequence the genome, but the genome assembly is coming very bad, so we don't have much data on that. This was formed by chance inside this amphibot gamarocetosus, inside the gut of the gamarocetosus. It made some kind of colonies, microcolonies or multicellular colonies. So the cell cycle of this works this way. You start with one single cell, which actually has a very strong sternal cell membrane, or cell wall. And then this will grow and grow and grow and grow, make bigger, bigger, and bigger. And then you will have several nuclei. And at some point, the nuclei will go to the periphery. And at some point, they will cellularize. The sternal cell wall will break, and all the cells will be released to the media. Are you with I have a... 
I have a video that will show that what I say is true, which is usually true in my in my. Is, is it a little treacherous <laughs> to be uh, using parasites as your example of evolutionary? That's a good question. Because yeah. I mean, obviously they are relying on their host for. So when you say they've lost all these genes, yeah. it could be because they're all parasites. Well, one, but the, the, the funny thing is that the ones they lost is quanoflagellates, right? So when I proposed, to, the first thing we proposed to, capture, to, to sequence all these genomes were not to the National Human Genome Research Institute, was to actually to the Joint Genome Institute. And I remember talking with Jeff Bohr, which, you know, I, he was my boss for, for a while. He was at Joint Genome Institute then, and I, and I say, Jeff, I have a very nice organism, closely related. It has already so it has some genes that are important for society because it has some ESTs. And he said, it's a parasite. I don't want a parasite. It will not tell you anything. But the, at the end, you never know. I mean, parasites can tell you no, something. I, I, and, we, and we don't know if it has a cell, you know, it has a free living stage. And this one, we don't know if it's a parasite. Very different selection pressures. Yeah, but the, we don't know this one, right? Yeah. It was formed by chance. But nobody knows if it's a symbiote or parasite. This one, eh? Or maybe it was eaten. If that's why it was inside the gut. And actually, as I will show later, we know that there are eutosporeans that are free living, for sure. But at some point in the cell cycle, does it live outside the host? Who knows? Who knows? I mean, have you ever heard of this organism before today? I have only been working for four years. I mean, I, <laughs> I wish to know, but I, we don't know. And, and what's that strange flagellar-like object in the larger picture? This? Yeah. No, this yeah. nothing. Forget it. It's, 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 this is the external cell membrane. It is broke, and you have the cell, the external cell wall. I'm going to show the. Uh, you want to do a question? Oh, you said these guys had a cell wall. Did the capsospora also have a cell wall? No. no. So it was lost somewhere. So is this a fungal development? Or I mean, I'm not saying it's the wall. same as fungal. Eh? I'm just saying it's very thick. We don't know how it's. Okay. We don't know the components of the thick cell wall. Another naive question. Is there one nucleus in each cell? So here it will be one with one nucleus, and then one with two nucleus. You can also see. And then it grows, 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 and it has. A lot of nucleus. It will be like a syncytium. Let's play the movie. So you will see what I say here. So this starts, I mean, it's, it's starting already a little bit big. I don't remember which one we have to focus, either this or this. Just look at both of them, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you will see there is a lot. It's timeless movie. So two, 100 or 200 times faster. You will see there are a lot of things going on. There is one, one moment you will see nuclear here. Nuclear is going to the periphery here, right? to the periphery, then they will cellularize, some point it will break, and the seeds are released to the media. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then everything starts again. Can you show it again when it's over? Yeah? What's, what's the Did scale? it also fuse with the other one? So this will be, so the smaller one will be th three or four um, micros. This will be up to 50 or 60 micros, the bigger ones. But did they fuse after they, the one burst? Did they what? If the, if the two touch, they fuse. No, no, they look for a new home and they start everything again. This is in a, uh, between cover slips. Is this a very thin layer of fluid? Yeah, it's a thin layer, but it will happen also. In so is this a syncytia? Uh, we call it syncytia, yes, because yeah. you, you would see like it. It's like early development. Yeah. yeah. Many things are like, there's hopefully other than that. Yeah, but hopefully <laughs> you see our replicate and they go to the periphery. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, it's very similar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. You think this thing gave rise to the fly right away? Or? <laughs> <laughs> they take time. So here is what's going on. This is 
This is what we see life cycle of Pictures Spiroforma, and other Ichthyosporians as well. There's no discernible differentiation, right? There's no discernible differentiation. I would like to know because maybe there is. Yeah. So, for example, one thing I, I would like to know is whether transcription factors, you know, you put the genes into the gastrulation. That's what it is. Well, this one, yeah, maybe. maybe. <laughs> so, anyway, we try. Yeah, sorry. I don't understand. You say, you say that some of these cells move to the surface? No, no not the cells. Eh? These are, this is one cell. These are nuclear. Yes, the nuclear move to the surface. Yeah, well, they, they go to, like, to periphery. Okay. That's usually guided on microtubules and actin filaments. Yeah. 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 And each one of those then can make another colony. Yeah, they will make another colony. You should put this on YouTube. I put it. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen it? How many hits? How many hits? Not three or four. I think. <laughs> my mom, my dad. <laughs> I'm, I'm me. I don't know, but <laughs> there's three or four people from my lab probably. That's it. <laughs> Put it on our wiki and it'll go viral. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, we try to do develop. We try for two years to develop transgenesis tools, and it failed. As you know, Nicole King has tried for conoflagellates for nine years. It also failed. So. We did for a while, we didn't, we didn't know what to do. But of course, you can go to heterologous systems. And that's, I'm going to explain what we have done with heterologous systems. So for example, remember Bracuri, the gene that works in gastrulation, that Capsospora has Bracuri, okay? So, of course, Xenopus is the best, one of the best organisms in which gastrulation is known. So we, we, we wanted to see if the Capsospora Bracuri is able to recover the function of the endogenous Xenopus Bracuri. So this is a, Embryo of Xenopus. This is a mutant for Bracuri. It's not able to develop into full embryo. This is a mutant of Bracuri in which we insert the endogen of Xenopus Bracuri, and then it's able to recover more or less the function. This is a mutant of Bracuri for Xenopus. This is a mutant of Xenopus mutant for Bracuri in which we insert the capsospora Bracuri, and it's able to recover the function and also to activate some downstream genes like wing, cording, etc. And then we'll be, this will be another Capsospora T-box, which is notable. So here we have Bracuri that is, has all the amino acid-specific positions, and you put it into a multicellular, How clearly long multicellular organ. Take development. Do you get a tadpole? Or? Sorry? Can you get a tadpole? <laughs> no, we didn't do that. No. Well, no, just up to here. That's it. But as I said, it also activates wing and cording. Yeah which are the typical genes that activate. What is the last sequence showing? I didn't understand. So this will be another T-box genes of Capsospora, but it's not Bracuri. So you can get a negative result. Show, show that sometimes you don't. No. I mean, that looked interesting. I didn't know what yeah. it was. <laughs> so if we also look at, because what we would be interested in is to know what are the downstream genes of Capsospora. So we check the, we try to get the consensus binding sign of Capsospora Bracuri. But the thing is very, very similar to metazoans and even to other T-boxins. They all look very similar, so we don't know if what that means. Well, the idea would be to do a chip check and then know what are the downstream genes. Then another heterologous system. So the hippopathway. The hippopathway is, it works in or, controls organ growth and 
what you know about IPO pathway because nobody knows. Okay, so it controls organ growth and, and cell um, and cell proliferation. It was thought to be specific to animals. We also found a lot of the most important components of this organ growth pathway in Capspora, right? And because we couldn't do anything, we did entorological system in collaboration with Two Japan. So this will be regular Drosophila. I, if we, if you put, <laughs> if you put, so you have here a, a co two cofactors, uh, transcription factors, Scalopet and Yorkie, which they form a transcriptional regulation, um, transcriptional. Well, they are two transcription factors. They bind together. They activate uh, organ growth. So if you if you overspread Drosophila, scalopet and Drosophila yorki all together, the eye will overgrow. But if you put also Capsospora, scalopet and Capsospora yorki, it will also be a big overgrowth of the eye. And EPO, it's another component that down, I mean, down regulates scalopet and yorki. So if you put Capsospora EPO, it will shrink the eye of Drosophila. So organ growth in a unicellular organism that is functionally conserved with Drosophila. So does it control the size of uh, We don't know. Whole, uh, we don't know. <laughs> we want to know. Again, we want to know. <laughs> so the other gene, other than rhodopsin, which I saw in your previous picture, was fat. So Capsospora doesn't have fat. Yeah, that's true. This yeah. is all upstream of Hippo. Yeah, but it has other, it has Merlin, it has other components. Oh, <laughs> but of course, I mean, this is interesting, this is nice, I mean, uh, clearly it's nice to see, to put things into Xenopus and Drosophila and see that it works, but it doesn't really tell us what are they are doing, I mean, the real function in this organism, right? But because it fails everything in Capsospora and, and Sparoforma, then we try another Ichosporia, we didn't have the genome, I mean, but, you know, I mean, we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't marry it with Capsospora or or far from her. So we could try with another one. And this one looks interesting for one reason. So this is another Tosporean found inside this first colosoma. I don't remember what colosoma is, but it's a metazoan. <laughs> <laughs> you can find it in many places. So see, check one of these. I don't remember. Just check all of them. You will see the cell cycle. It's very similar. Sensitive states. See what happens here? There is not external cell wall. There are amoebas. Without. And one of the problems we had in doing transformation or microinjection was the external cell wall of the Chesporeans. So we decided to try with these guys. Let's see with these guys we are more lucky. I mean, it's, it's also the Chesporean, and the genome is so easy that if it works, then we do the genome, right? And it worked, it actually worked. So we did transformation here, and it worked very nicely. So this is the first unicellular relative of metasoans in which you can do something at the and the, and, the, and the bench, right? Wow. So this is beta-tubuloid promoter of creolimas, and then Easton. We put the Easton as far because we already cloned it, <laughs> plus M cherry. So this, you can see the nuclei. And this is beta-tubulin, so it's a double cost of transformation. Tubulin promoter of creolimas plus venus, which goes to the cytosol. This is the cell. As you can see, the efficiency is not very good because we have two cells here, and it's only working in one. Actually, it's working in very less than 50%. But you can see the very nice, actually, synchronous division, which is different than gonoflacellates. So it's working. And it's, 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 not, it's not permanent. Sorry? 
Why, why are we seeing the nuclei there? Because you have Easton here. It's not minus Easton. Okay. So now you can overexpress your things. So we can overexpress things, exactly, and try. So this is with creolimus, and of course we are now doing the genome of creolimus because we didn't have the genome of creolimus. So we we are we have the genome of creolimus, and this is this is not permanent transformation. This is not so. It's this is temporal, but the good thing is it can go to the next stage. So it can go. You will see this is the same experiment, actually the same cell. You will go that it, you will see that it survives for many times the fluorescence, and it can go to the amoeba stage as well. Okay. So it's temporal transformation, but it works quite nicely. Yeah, there is no microRNAs per se, but there are other small RNAs. So are they? Uh, is there just a really strong RNA surveillance mechanism that's keeping the gene shut down or transgenic, or is it just the beginning actually? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But the thing is, for example, that's that's another part. So we we also can do. Knockout. So we can do gene silencing wars on this organism as well with morpholinos or, or sRNA. So we can do gene silencing now of these organisms. What's the time frame? That's how long does it take to go through this lab cycle? Is it 48 minutes? Is that, is that what we're looking at? Minutes? Yeah, this is minutes. And the this is minutes for this, eh? but then you had already. So it will, you will have like 48 hours. To go from a single amoeba. Ah, you mean, no, 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 this is, I think, like 30 hours, I think. I don't remember now. Eh? I have it. It's looking at the rate of reproduction. I mean, these things is <laughs> yeah, yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah. But th this is the ones that segregate the nuclei, and then every little thing has a nucleus. Yeah. 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 But this has amoeba compared to the other. Yeah. yeah. Multiplied. Yeah. And uh, to culture this thing, you... Uh, it grows very well without bacteria. And you can, without bacteria, so arsenically, no bacteria. This one, no bacteria. Very normal medium, substrate. And you can even grow in, in agar plates. So you can have liquids or solid culture. Your GFP is diluting out. Does that mean it's not integrated? It's not integrated, as I say. It's just temporal. Yeah. We want to integrate, but... And we have not succeeded. Well, we don't know if it's a parasite, this one. It can be food, this one. Eh? We don't know. We only know for Capsospora. But how hard can it be to determine whether it's haploid or diploid? What, what? I don't know how hard, but we, we, we probably we don't, we don't know how to do it. If somebody knows how to do it, just check it with how. I, I give my organism some. <laughs> You stain with something like Athidium bromide, and that fluoresces, it intercalates into the DNA, right. and it fluoresces, and it does so in proportion to the amount of DNA. So if you see 2x fluorescence and 1x fluorescence. Right. You mean with like, like, a, like a cell sorter or something like this? Oh. Yeah, you just put it in a fluorescent microscope, and it excites you. And, and the fluorescent microscope? Yeah. Well, of cell cycle well you, we talk later and you explain it. I mean, some people have told me how to do it, and we have not succeeded. So we don't know what they are. They are haploid or not. Because these guys could be uh, haploid that come off here. Yeah. And gametes. And gametes that come yeah. off. And then you'll get mating and you start a whole, you know, you could start bacterial genetics again. Does it have any weapons applications? <laughs> not that I know. <laughs> Maybe it has nutrition applications. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
so the thing is Capsules for us as Archi, we also we keep working on that. Even even so, we had transformation working on Chrome image. We keep working on that. And three months ago, I mean, three months ago, we had the first transformation on Capsules for oh, wow. Very low efficiency. I mean, you can see how many Capsules for <laughs> how we only have. But this is encouraging us that maybe we can keep working on this, and maybe one day we'll be able to do something on Capsules for And then we will have two model organisms, Capsules for and Etiosporians, to understand the origin. Is Sorry? Is yeah, yeah. Yeah. this part of the Sorry? Or is it like It's a tropolation. It's a Both. Kerolimas and this one. And it goes into the main chromosome, or is this just a sort of a plasmid? This is temporal. It goes somewhere, maybe a plasmid or something, and that's it. And, and did you have to treat the cell wall with an enzyme? This, there is no cell wall in this one, in Capsospora. The problem with Capsospora is very, very, very small. This is two mi micros. That was the problem, I think, with yeah. Capsospora. So, so Capsospora was the one that lived in the... In the Omphalaria, yeah. In the snail. Yeah. In the snail, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you... I, I can come back to some of the names. I know, I know it's confusing, but I... Okay. So one is Capsospora. It has the philopodia. It has the three cell stages. It aggregates, and it lives inside the Omphalaria. And we can look at transformation. But we... It's not so good as the other transformation with Crolima, which worked very well, but we didn't have the genome, so now we are doing the genome. Right? It's, I mean, these things happen in life, right? So what? You wanted it doesn't work, then you want to. Really? So what are we going to do in the future? So more genomes? There is one genome, so there is one organism called Autism Massive Porum. Nobody knows where it goes because we only have like two or three genes. Some people think it's sister group to Etosporean, some trees showed here, some trees showed here. So, and it was lost, the culture. We finally succeed to have a culture again. This was different. I don't, I mean, I have a movie, but I didn't bring it here. It, gaps, it goes up to four or six, 16 uh, cells together, and then they disintegrate and they start again. It's very, it's completely different to the others. So, uh, uh, it's a question that repeats. It sounds strange, but. Uh, when you look closely at these organisms, they they vacillate between multicellular exactly. and exactly. That's that's what I, that's what we want to propose. To what degree are there single cell organisms? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, if we haven't, yeah, yeah. I think they have like you did they like have like simple multicellularity, but I think this is probably the, the the first step, right? So you have some kind of simple multicellularity, and then you have several lineages. So one lineage will have like one of flagellates, a very clear flagellate cell stage. Because and then you have this with different cell states. And probably all of these, yeah. not even the genes, but also the morphology, yeah. were co-opted to work into multicellular organisms. The prokaryotes live in large slimed <laughs> uh, polyfilaments and things. I mean, most, of, I wonder if most single cell organisms are all don't yeah. have some defenses some kind of, or some yeah, yeah. part of their... Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 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 We should call our program Evolution of Unicellular. Yeah, <laughs> which is just Maybe. transient. <laughs> so, one, so that one last thing. So, of course, what we want to do in the future is to understand the function of those genes, like Bracuri, integrins, scatterings, P53. These are meek. These are the more our main targets. But we also want to have more data because taxon sampling, when you change the taxon sampling, the evolutionary history of those genes can change as we have shown with Capsospora. So we are aware that this can change. But of course, we don't have many other lineages to sequence 
cultural lineages. But we do have cult we have lineages that are not that you that are on the environment, but we you do not have culture. So for example, what we have checked is we have checked all the data that are for environmental samplings out there. I mean, there is a lot of environmental samplings done by several labs around the world. So you have a lot of 18S, one gene, 18S data from, from the environment. But we you don't know what they are, right? So we put all these 18S data on one single gene only for the data that are opistocons. And then I'm showing here quanoflacellates here. This is all more or less quanoflacellates. And these are ATS4Ans. And we check what, I, what you can find from here. And we see we detected hidden lineages. So lineages that nobody has ever seen or culture. Well, maybe seen, but never have culture or obtained data. So all the crates here with an asterisk, like this one, 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 they are all from the environment. Nobody has ever cultured them, right? But they are there. You have clades, completely clades, and nobody has ever seen or culture, but they are closely related to animals. And the trick now is that you can have, you can do single cell genomics from those organisms. So there are people that have, for example, a single amplified genome from something from this clade, something from this clade. So what we want to do is to go into these single amplified genomes which they have a big low laboratory and they have provided to us, and they amplify those genomes. I mean, we don't know what they are, but they are clades that are closely related to animals. And they can probably change our, you know, expect, I mean, our current scenario, evolutionary scenario. Yes? So, so this is kind of the antithesis of the whole conference that we've been having so far, right, where multicellularity comes about by unicellular things cooperating with each other. You're saying now that multicellularity comes by itself. No, well, what, I, what I think, I mean, the idea we have on the lab is that there were something there. There were some genes working on something that the, they, those genes were co-opted. But also that you have, if you, if you look at the first trees, so the first trees here, you have several lineages here, right? And some of them have some kind of multicellularity. And they have several different cell stages, several cell morphology. So you have flagellates here. You have amoeba and aggregative stage here. You have these kind of colonies. You have also amoebas here. So what I think is you had all those lineages with an important gene repertoire for transcriptional regulation, cell signaling, cell addition, which they were doing something for their life, right? They are doing something. And those genes were co-opted. And maybe some of those cell morphologies were also co-opted because, I mean, these morphologies you can find in metasomes, right? You can find flagellates mm -hmm. cells. You can find amoeba cells. You can find some of those things. I mean, even that looks like drosophila, as you said. So some of those things, maybe they were there and they were co-opted. Not only the genes, but the cell morphologies. And then you, what you did, I mean, what happened is you transfer the regulation of Temporal cell differentiation, because you have temporal cell differentiation here, as I show, very highly regulated, into spatial cell differentiation. So you have the same place, multicellular, you have some genes, some morphologies here, some morphologies here, and they are regulated at the same time, but in a different place on the spatial. I mean, it's spatial cell differentiation. So you go from temporal cell differentiation to spatial cell differentiation, co-opting the genes that were already present here, there, and co-opting the cell morphologies that were already present there. Yes. Yeah. 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 Ye
That's what we want to try to you sell. Map, you showed a map of the go ontologies in different stages, right? Do you yeah. have a map of which genes are involved in each one of these? Because you're saying that some of the pathways Yeah, we have we have everything, yes, but are I different. Mean, you know, they are co-opted, but co-opted for what? In, in in the in the in the cycle that you showed where this multicellular co-opting appeared and then broke up into pieces. You mean these? Yeah. So these are co-opted well, the, no, no, no. I'm not. I'm not saying goated. This is. These are genes. So these in green here are genes that are enriched for these functions. So on those. So if you check the transcriptome, you will see that in the in the transcriptome of the aggregate cell stage, you will see find you will find genes that are expressed much more expressed than the other two. Right. right? And, the, and then the gene ontology will show that those genes that are more expressed here are involved in. In local addition, extracellular matrix, microtubes. No, but that, that's that's for creatures. That's for other other things. That, yeah. So the the goal classification doesn't mean anything for this this object, does it? Because that's that's based on on other things for which we we understand the function. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I got so your point. There is no mapping. Yeah, here I mean, actually, what we our selling point here is this is highly regulated, right? Because if it's not highly regulated, you wouldn't have But those labels all those. don't mean anything for this organism, Well, not necessarily. But you have genes that are involved in different functions, expressed at different cell stages. So that means regulation. Yeah. Do we agree? I mean, yeah, but, but this is highly regulated. Even the alternative splicing of those three stages are completely different. You have genes that are alternative splicing in one place or not in the other. But what would be interesting is there is a phenotypic change from one phase in this yeah. circle to yeah. the other. Yeah. What would be interesting is which genes are differentially regulated between these well, two. These are here. No, but that's not a gene. No, this are, but we have the genes, of course. I know you do, yeah. but you're not showing them. No, so, I'm not showing that. So then you look at the function I, and say, does the phenotype, phenotypic change correlate with... Yeah, the but the, for example, you see... Ah, so for example, in the, in the, in the other end, in that here, you find integrins are more highly regulated. The genes are co-opted, right? Then the phenotypic difference between these two stages is not correlated with, with what the genes are doing in other other things. By co-opted, I mean from here to metazoan, right? Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah. So in metazoan, the labeling is correct. The gene uh, ontology that you showed yeah. is for metazoan yeah, it's biology. For, yeah. But the, but the same genes are now having yeah. different Yeah, functions. yeah, but I have the same for, for, I mean, I don't have it here, but I have the same for course, with the genes. But he, yeah, yeah. So, so the outer things. Protein, I mean, no, but by looking at the genes and knowing their function in metazoans, he can tell which function have been co-opted, because he knows the phenotypic change that is. I know the phenotypic change, and I know, for example, that integrins are high, more highly expressed here, and, and which is a gene. It's a gene. Right. It's not are they a function. Involved in this? Are they involved? Which integrins are Well, involved? that's. I mean, we need to go into the functional analysis. We, we need to do immuno immunohistochemistry and see yeah. if they are. You know, if they show up here more or not. Can you do deletion experiments on each of these or not? We can do what? Deletion experiments. You can delete some Not couch. No, not in capsospora. We can do in Kerolimas, which also have an integrin. I think people would say this is showing something, but this oh, is sure. a very coarse tool, right? These genotologies are not a, No, of course not. not That's exactly what I'm saying. Sharp not only that, but, the, but right? the function that is ascribed to those genes is, has nothing to do with this organism. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. I agree. I agree. I agree. But as I said, we only here say it's highly regulated. Okay. In the beginning, when this little green ball was in fact, 
Do you remember that uh, you said that the integrins? The integrins. So do you have an estimate of how much in time this regression is? So we don't know the divergence time of Tecamonas to the others. We don't know. But it will be, I mean, our estimate will be that at least 800 million years. But we don't know. Did you get to your conclusion? I, did. I think so. You did? Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, are there other questions? Um, I see some people have already formulating models to how to. <laughs> yeah, if you want to formulate models, I don't know how to do it. You go ahead and. <laughs> uh, uh, if there are no other questions, uh, I, I just want to repeat to, tonight this, the, our group dinner is at uh, La Super Rica, 622 North Miltus. There will be uh, there will be a set of people uh, at the entrance here at 7 to 7:05, looking for people who need rides and so on. So uh, cash only too. It's a, it's a cash only place. It's a very unique. Restaurant. I think you were. Well, where is it? That's where we were a few weeks ago, was it? Yes. Yeah, we were there last week as well. Uh, uh, we'll try the tamales. Yeah, well, there's, yeah, there's a lot to try there. Uh, okay, um, and we have another talk today at 1 30, which, which will be in the auditorium. Okay, thanks again, Inyaki.